Welcome to Pushback, I'm Aaron Maté. After its assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, the Trump administration predicted that Soleimani's murder would be welcomed across the Middle East. Well, Iran has responded with a multi-city funeral that saw millions of people turn out to mourn Soleimani's murder and to call for revenge. Meanwhile, in Iraq, the Iraqi parliament has voted overwhelmingly to call for U.S. forces to leave. Joining me to discuss what all this means is Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He is the former Chief of Staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, currently a distinguished professor at the College of William and Mary. Welcome, Professor Wilkerson, to Pushback. More than any other former government official, I'd say you have been sounding the alarm about the Trump administration's march to war on Iran since pretty much the day Trump took office. What is your response to Qasem Soleimani's murder by the U.S. and did you ever fathom that the U.S. under Trump would do something so brazen? Aaron, I knew that they would try to find, they being principally the two warmongers that are most prominent, Mike Pompeo and, uh, and his colleague over at the Pentagon, Secretary Esper, um, Christian fundamentalists from West Point, if you will. Um, I knew that they would try to find something that would uh, push the president over the edge, so to speak. I had no idea that it would be something as violative of international law uh, and as dramatic as this, uh, but it's not in the sense that I just said, it's not a surprise. What do you think the motive was here? What do you think was really driving this and which triggered uh, Trump's ultimate decision to do something so brazen? The motive of people like Pompeo, um, unquestionable, and Esper and Lindsey Graham and others, is war. They want a war with Iran. The uh, motive of Bibi Netanyahu, and to a certain extent, I think, Mohammed bin Salman, they all want the United States to at least bomb Iran, at least exercise some of the packages we have, the war plan packages we have, and bomb Iran. Um, and that's that's the, their motivation. Now, Trump is a different animal altogether. Trump, I don't think, really wants a full-blown war or even a major bombing campaign against Iran. He knows that'll drive a lot of his base away from him because a lot of his base voted for him because he said he was against these stupid endless wars. And they see that there may be something questionable about that, especially if he brings us into yet another war in Southwest Asia, in the Middle East. So... Trump, I think, did this more for domestic political purposes than anything else. He's imperiled right now. Uh, the impeachment grows apace. There's a revelation every day. Um, there are going to be more revelations. And he's going to get in deeper and deeper political water. And he's going to erode his base as that happens. And so I think he did this as much to deflect attention away from his political problems as he did to do something dramatic with regard to Iran. Colonel Wilkerson, having served in the Bush administration and witnessed the uh, doctoring and manipulation of evidence to make a phony case for invading Iraq, I'm wondering uh, about the parallels you see to the Trump administration today. You have Trump citing alleged intelligence claiming that Qasem Soleimani was involved in planning an imminent attack on U.S. forces. Uh, you have Mike Pence making false claims about Iran's ties to Al-Qaeda and 9-11. And you have uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo sort of echoing 
Donald Rumsfeld's comments about freedom being untidy when he says, uh, speaking to meet the press, uh, that ultimately this attack, this assassination will make the U.S. safer, quote, even if there's a little noise here in the interim, unquote. What I would say is I, these lies are not nearly as good as Dick Cheney's lies or Donald Rumsfeld's lies. Go back and look at some of those press conferences that those guys conducted. I mean, their lies were pretty well-rounded and, and, and pretty well-shaped. These lies are risible. They're laughable, especially Pence's. There is no connection between Soleimani and al-Qaeda. They hated al-Qaeda. Soleimani was helping us, as were other Iranians of his type, in Afghanistan in the beginning days of our operation there to oust the Taliban and go after al-Qaeda. They continued to help us right up to the axis of evil speech that was uh, pretty much impolitic for George Bush to do at that time because they were in fact helping us. And even with that, even with being included in the axis of evil, they were still helping us right up to the bond conference and the selection of Karzai to be the, at that time, interim leader of Afghanistan as we brought the Taliban down and chased al-Qaeda out. So that their comments are just risible. And this comment by Pompeo, that democracy or freedom or whatever is just untidy. Remember what happened after that. Rumsfeld was fired. Remember that we had an insurgency that killed thousands of American boys and girls and wounded thousands more. Remember that we lost the war in Iraq and started the ravages we see in the Middle East today. Everything that's happening in the Middle East today in Southwest Asia that is bad the United States started when it invaded Iraq in 2003. So these guys are not even the kind, the caliber, the talented liars that I had around me in the Bush administration. They're laughable. They're jokesters. I want to go to a clip from General Wesley Clark, uh, who uh, formerly served as the uh, Supreme Allied Commander, Commander for NATO. And he made uh, a very famous comment after he... Uh, left uh, military service, talking about how he heard about plans for the U.S. to take out seven countries in five years. And one of those countries is Iran. Let's go to that clip. About 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to Come in, you got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, well, you're too busy. He said, no, no. He says, we've made the decision we're going to war with Iraq. So I came back to see him a few weeks later, and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense's office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. So that's Wesley Clark uh, recounting an exchange he had inside the Pentagon. The Secretary of Defense he is referring to at that time was, of course, Donald Rumsfeld. Colonel Wilkerson, you served in that administration. You served with Donald Rumsfeld. Does General Clark's recollection and what he claims he overheard, does that track with what you witnessed when you were serving inside that same government? I would only make one change to what he said. I had a security clearance and I did see it. 
Hmm. <laughs> and what he said is basically basically correct. Now, I will say that I just saw the next plans. The next plans were for Syria. Um, Syria just fell right in line with uh, Iraq because we thought it was going to be swift, quick, roses in the street, candy in the uh, in the bars and so forth. Everything was going to be over very quickly. Rumsfeld thought we'd be out of Iraq by August and we'd bounce right over into Syria. And we thought that Syria would be sufficiently cowed by how fast we did Iraq and it wouldn't be very hard in Syria. And then we'd move on from there. Um, I actually saw the contingency planning for that, classified contingency planning. So uh, I don't know that uh, the plan was that elaborate, but I suspect, I don't doubt General Clark, uh, I, I suspect it was. And this shows you, as one person said to me at the time, sort of reflecting General Clark's impression, these people don't know what they're doing. They're totally incompetent. This was an Air Force three-star general. Um, and and, and my, my impression was just the same. That was right before I was kicked out of the Pentagon. I had gone to the Pentagon to restart something George Marshall had done when he was uh, the Secretary of State and had George Kennan in his policy planning apparatus, um, joint staff talks. And so I had started talks under Richard Haas's tutelage. He was the head of policy planning for state. I was working for Richard at the time. I'd started joint staff talks with the J-5, General Casey at the time, in the Pentagon. And we had met twice to discuss things like China, Korea, and so forth. And to bring the diplomats and the warriors together again in a formal sort of way. Well, I got kicked out. I got kicked out of the Pentagon because Rumsfeld said he didn't want any contact between state and defense. And I think one of the reasons I got kicked out was because they had an inkling that I had been privy to some things they didn't want me to be privy to. Like what? Like that plan for Syria. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you know, in a separate segment, we're going to talk more about Syria because there are some new developments when it comes to U.S. regime change efforts there, particularly potential manipulation of the OPCW. But sticking to Iran, uh, you were also involved uh, back in the Bush administration uh, in uh, efforts to transmit overtures from Iran, if I have it correctly. After the U.S. invasion, uh, there were some overtures from Iran, possibly involving Qasem Soleimani. Uh, and I, if I have the history right, you uh, fielded some of those offers and tried to share them inside the government. Do I have that right? You have it basically right. I, I saw it when it came in. But the history of that is as elaborate as Trita Parsi, for example, has made it in his book and maybe even beyond that. My, uh, my memory of it is that we in policy planning prepared a sort of non-paper. A non-paper something with no indicia on it. It doesn't indicate what government it came from or anything else. It goes to another government or governments with their knowledge that it's coming from a government, but there's no indicator for it. So we did this. We prepared a non-paper, and that non-paper was done by Richard Haas and Policy Planning, and what it said was, these are the things we would like to talk to Iran about should we ever get to talk. And we passed it up to the deputy, who was Richard Armitage at the time, because Richard didn't trust it going straight into the secretary. He thought the secretary would throw it back at him, and he wanted to get the deputy secretary's opinion before he did. And it disappeared. I never saw it again. I was later kind of hinted, it was hinted at by some people from Bill Burns' NEA, the department that looks over at state that looks over the Middle East. It was hinted that it did go through. It got to Iran. 
So when I saw this coming back, this non-paper essentially coming back from Iran later, I thought it was in response, and I still think it was in response. I think if I could get into the archives, I could prove it was in response to our non-paper. Because what it did was it addressed all the points we had addressed in our paper, plus it added their points. So now you had two papers side by side that said, this is what the U.S. wants to talk about if we ever talk. This is what Iran wants to talk about if we ever talk. And they were marvelously similar. They, they were incredibly similar. They included the nuclear program. And so when I saw that come across, I was you know, euphoric for a moment or two because I thought, well, our protecting power in Tehran, the Swiss has passed this on to Geneva. They passed it on to us. And now we have this in our hands and we have the prospects of dialogue. I knew that the president liked the idea of dialogue with Iran. He did not like Dick Cheney's idea of we don't talk to evil and we never will talk to Iran, therefore. Uh, the president didn't like that. It was his second term before he finally put Cheney in the closet on Iran and essentially said, go away, because he did start the process that Obama picked up on and negotiated the JCO, JCPOA through later. So the, President Bush was not as indisposed to dialogue as Dick Cheney was. Dick Cheney did everything he could, though, to stop that from happening. And this is one case where this happened. Now, I said this in public um, 2006, 2007 or so, and I got rebuked by my own Secretary of State, my own boss. <laughs> yeah. Little did I know that he had, according to him now, he had told on Bill Burns' advice, the Assistant Secretary for NEA for Near East and uh, for the region, Bill Burns, he had told uh, the White House that he didn't think this was a serious offer. On the advice of Bill Burns, he had told the White House he didn't think this was a serious offer. Condi said, Condi Rice, the National Security Advisor, said initially that she never saw it, which was a lie or a, a lapse of memory. She did, in fact, see it. Uh, one of her staffers, uh, Flint Leverett's wife, uh, came out and essentially said, oh, yes, you did, Madam National Security Advisor. And so she had to retract her statement and say, yes, she did, she did see it. But for some reason, it wasn't treated as important as it probably should have been. I suspect for my own boss... He was so, Secretary Powell was so embroiled in a battle with Dick Cheney over North Korea and trying to deal with North Korea the way he thought we should against Dick Cheney's, again, statement that we don't talk to evil, therefore we couldn't talk to the North Koreans, that he didn't want to take on another fight. He just, he just did not want to take on another fight of equal proportions. He wanted to get rid of the North Korean one if he could first. And so he just discarded this attempt. But it was, as you intimated, and as Trita talks about in his book, it was a missed opportunity to resume dialogue and effective dialogue much earlier than we eventually did with Obama and the secret talks that led to the nuclear agreement with Iran. So speaking of the nuclear agreement with Iran, uh, in the aftermath of Qasem Soleimani's assassination, what do you think the chances are that Iran actually pursues a nuclear weapons program? They have long sworn off such a program, and if U.S. intelligence is to, is to be believed, if I have this right, uh, U.S. intelligence concluded that Iran abandoned even the uh, um, steps towards a potential nuclear program, not an actual nuclear program, but the steps that would lead it towards a potential one back in 2003. 
Do you think, though, that actions such as this, such as killing Soleimani, might lead Iran to reverse that decision and actually seek a nuclear weapons program? Aaron, I'm very, very concerned about that. You put your finger on perhaps my biggest concern, because after all, Iran's nuclear weapons capability would be another blow to almost everything that we've tried to do since 1945 to harness nuclear weapons and so forth. So I'm very encouraged by an interview I did today that included, I did it for News 4 in London, it included an Iranian professor from their leading university who speaks fluent English along with me. And we both agreed that what we're seeing right now is wisdom and strategic thinking in Tehran. They have not completely abrogated the nuclear agreement. They have not said they're going to withdraw from the non-proliferation treaty, and they have not kicked out the inspectors, as Kim Jong-il, now Kim Jong-un, has done in North Korea. So we agreed that right now they're being pretty wise in Tehran. They're going to respond to this act. They're going to retaliate. But they're thinking about keeping it on a what you might call proportional level. So what does that mean? I don't know. Maybe some attacks against Israel by Hezbollah. Maybe some attacks against U.S. forces in the region. Maybe some more attacks against Saudi oil infrastructure or whatever. But it will be proportional because they want to keep China and they want to keep Russia in the agreement. And they want to keep the Europeans in the agreement and keep the Europeans working on the resolution process they were working on, and indeed might have been very close to uh, success to get Iran out of the complete effect of the sanctions that Pompeo and others have put them under. So I'm, I'm somewhat encouraged by the fact that it looks like the Iranians are being very smart here, much better than us, much more strategic than us, and they're trying to fashion a response to this. Get, don't get me... You, they're going to have to respond. They are not going to be able not to respond. Their people will not allow them not to do that. So they're going to have to respond, but they're working on a way to respond that won't be so provocative that our next response to their response will be so escalatory that it will include bombing packages on Iran, as President Trump has suggested. Um, war crimes, if you will, bombing cultural sites and so forth. But, you know, this president is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's saying from one moment to the next. And his own administration has tried to walk that back. I listened to a woman, to a woman today. She was eviscerated by a reporter from London who essentially told her, look, here's what the president said. Look, look at it. Listen to it. This is what he said. Of course, he said he was going to bomb 52 sites of, of which some would be cultural. Well, that's a war crime. So we're being idiotic. The strike on uh, uh, Suleimani was idiotic. It was bad timing. It was not uh, the right thing to do. It was strategic, not tactical. Um, but the Iranians, hopefully, they seem to be smart in the way they're reacting to this. And that's not out of character for them. After all, they are uh, a country that went through one of the most brutal war periods in the 20th century from roughly 1980 to 88, 89, with the war with Iraq, World War I-type casualties, trench warfare, that sort of thing, gas used on them by Saddam Hussein. So they know what it's like to be bombed. They know what it's like to die under a hail of bombs and missiles. 
Um, they're going to try to do this smartly, I think. So I'm, I'm, I'm just a little bit encouraged by what I'm hearing out of Tehran. And that war by Saddam Hussein, of course, was supported by the United States, uh, yes. even yeah. uh, arming Saddam Hussein and providing him with, dem- with diplomatic cover. Yeah, the joke was that uh, we knew that Saddam Hussein had chemical weapons because we sold him the precursors and Donald Rumsfeld was the emissary. That's right. Famously shaking his hand in that video. Let me ask you finally, uh, Colonel, as we wrap uh, this part, um, on all sides, even amongst uh, Democrats, you know, offering process critiques of Trump's strikes, it's taken at face value that Iran is aggressive throughout the Middle East and that uh, the U.S. has to counter it. I would certainly understand anybody criticizing Iran for being aggressive against its own people. And I know people who have suffered greatly under the Iranian government at home. But abroad, it strikes me as a different story. And it strikes me that people in Iran, as we see today from the millions of people who came out for Qasem Soleimani's uh, funeral, see him, ha- see him as a hero precisely because he protected Iran from outside aggression, whether it's from the U.S., Israel, or from ISIS. And on that front, I want to reach you uh, a assessment from the Pentagon in 2014 describing uh, Iran's fundamentally military doctrine. And now I, I want to get your response. It says this, quote, Iran's military doctrine is defensive. It is designed to deter an attack, survive an, an initial strike, retaliate against an aggressor, and force a diplomatic solution to hostilities while avoiding any concessions that challenge its core interests, unquote. That's the Pentagon in 2014. I'm wondering if you agree with that. And if you do, what then do you think accounts for the gulf between how Iran is perceived even internally by the Pentagon and how U.S. officials, whether they're in the Pentagon or in the White House, and also even in the Democratic opposition, how they talk about Iran publicly? I have to answer you with this, Adam, or Aaron, I'm sorry. Um, too many interviews today. <laughs> in, in September of 2015, in the Roosevelt Room, just outside the Oval Office, Major General Paul Eaton and I sat across from President Obama and Secretary John Kerry. We were there ostensibly to be thanked by the president for the work we'd done on the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement with Iran. The, the, the president was supposed to spend at most 10 or 15 minutes with us. He wound up spending about 35, 40 minutes with us, and he started off his conversation that was spellbinding with these words. There's a bias in this town toward war. I almost fell off my chair because that's what I've been teaching for 15 years. And I was sitting in front of a president who was admitting it to me. But the disquieting thing about his subsequent remarks was that he was hinting that he did not know what to do about it after seven years in office. That's what we're facing right now. We have not been at war for 20 years because we needed to be. We've been at war for 20 years because the national security state we have created since World War II and particularly since 9-11, its raison d'etre, its reason for being is war and more war. From the military industrial complex to all the sinews of this country that make endless billions of dollars from these wars, The influence is palpable. You see it when you go into the Senate. You see it when you go into the House of Representatives. You know these people are getting money from Lockheed Martin. You know they're getting money from ExxonMobil into their PACs, 
maybe into their personal pockets. You know they're getting money from Mohammed bin Salman and his minions. You know that Bibi Netanyahu knows all of this, and he knows the kind. Hey, he's talked about the kind of control he has over the United States Congress. Um, so that's what jumped up and grabbed Trump when he made the decision, the, the on-the-spot decision to take the most harsh option the military was giving him, which was killing Soleimani. It surprised the military. Aaron, the military wasn't even ready to take the measures in the region that it needed to take after the strike because it didn't think the president would pick that option. He picked that option because the alligator jumped out of the swamp that Trump promised to drain call war and grab the president by the throat. This president does not want a war with Iran, but he just might get one because that alligator's got him in a life hole. Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, the former chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell, currently a distinguished professor at the College of William & Mary. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Aaron.